Welcome to Health Unscripted, brought to you by The Cigna Group, a podcast featuring real, raw conversations with some of the most knowledgeable experts in the healthcare industry. Welcome to the Health Unscripted podcast. My name is Emma Sagan. I'm the VP of Digital Product here at The Cigna Group. And today I have the pleasure of interviewing the wonderful Katya Andreessen. Katya, thank you so much for joining us. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about how we take a human-centric approach to the products that we design and deliver and some of the biases that come from human nature and what that can mean in the process and how we try to combat those. With that, would love to turn it over to Katya to introduce herself. Hi, this is Katya Andreessen. I'm our Chief Digital and Analytics Officer, and I couldn't be more excited to have this conversation I'd love to learn a little bit more about how and why you decided to focus in the healthcare space. I think of focusing on the healthcare space as focusing on the human space. And when I think about what is most important to the human experience, it really comes down to our relationships, our health, and our finances or our ability to have shelter and food and so on and so forth. And I've spent my whole career in a variety of industries and roles, but all of them come down to understanding people, what makes them tick, and channeling that knowledge into really strong engagement that hopefully makes things better for people, but also can grow great companies. Healthcare in particular, I think, is a space that hasn't been as human-centered as one would hope. And so above all, I was drawn here because it's an incredible moment for healthcare. We can be more patient-centered or human-centered or provider-centered than we ever could have before because of advances in data, uh, computing power, digital experiences, digital adoption. So there's an incredible moment for healthcare that I think supersedes some of the barriers and obstacles that have been in the way in the past. I came to Cigna because we're a company that's very fully, fully committed to accelerating that agenda. And I think like many of us, I have had friends, loved ones in need of healthcare and not having the experiences I wish they might have. And so I came because I feel it's a great moment to try to change things for the better. You talk a little bit about how data has unlocked our ability to be more human-centric and um, ultimately help more folks. I'd love to understand, and I think folks might find that that tends to be in contrast, and I'd love to understand how you link those two together. I think that it's a really great time to harness data at scale. So a lot of the healthcare data is very fragmented. It can be hard to access. It can be hard to view from a patient-centered or consumer-centered way. For example, we don't really have a longitudinal patient record. We don't have all of our medical or health data in any one place, but we have the means to begin to change that, and it is changing. The reason that matters to being human-centered is to be truly human-centered, we need to understand what someone needs, at what time, through what channel, and understand the context that we are interacting with them in. And all of that is only possible with data at scale and data that is actionable at a personal level. 
So I think that to be truly personalized in our approach, we must be data informed. And I think maybe behind your question is people may see these two things in opposition, perhaps because if we think of big data or we think of averages in data. But the great unlock ahead is the amount of data and the means to organize the data and the tools to work with the data that let us really understand human beings more intimately and build the experiences that get at any one person's most important need in any given moment and understand that in the larger context of their life. What are some of the other things that are really critical in the product development process so that we tie understanding the data with some of the human behavior? There are two really fundamental ways to approach product that we are getting better and better at because we're starting to understand the importance of a product mindset and an innovation mindset. And so let me just take each of those one by one. A product mindset is when you go about thinking about what problems that you need to solve for real human beings. And that sounds very basic, but I think a lot of times we build products or we think about products in terms of outputs instead of outcomes. And what we really want to do is say, what are pain points that people are having and what do they need to solve that problem? And usually we have a hypothesis as to what we think is the right answer. And product mindset is the very humbling process of testing and learning if we have the right solution to the problem and learning more about the human beings, learning more about the problem, testing various possibilities and learning as fast as we can over and over again what is going to unlock value for the person that we are trying to serve as well as for the business that we work for. And it's an iterative process and it's a never ending process. We don't have a finish line on solving any problem in the world. There's usually an even better way to solve a problem or even better value to create. And so you sort of need endless curiosity and commitment to the understanding the human condition to do this kind of work. I know you share that with me. And that orientation is critical. And so it's both very human centered, but you're very focused on solving a problem through really compelling engagement and doing that through test and learn. And those are all things that are relatively new for much of healthcare and something that it's really exciting to see our teams begin to embrace. The other point I want to make here is about our teams themselves. It takes a very specific kind of team to do innovation work. You first of all need a diverse team. In my experience, you can move really fast if you have a bunch of people who are really similar and think alike. You will also have countless blind spots. You will cultivate groupthink and you will probably fail to have the best product market fit because you will be so inward facing and not have the outside in thinking that's so critical to innovation. So we need diverse teams. We need the psychological safety uh, to create a positive climate for those teams. And by psychological safety, I mean everyone feels they can show up as their authentic selves, take risks, 
not be penalized for their unique perspectives or the risks they take or the failures they may encounter. And the environment is really focused on embracing creative abrasion and embracing learning. And so you need that environment and you need that diverse group of people in order to solve problems very creatively. And that means leading differently. Dr. Linda Hill at Harvard's done some tremendous work around leading in innovation. And she draws a distinction between leading change management and leading innovation. Leading change is not easy, uh, we all know, but it's at least a situation where you have a vision, you have a destination, you probably have objectives and key results in terms of your path to get to the place you want to go. And you need to communicate that and bring people along and help people understand the why and empower them along the journey. Innovation is much less clear and far more messy. You don't know necessarily where you're going to end up. You may not even have a vision. You certainly have a purpose, though. You know there's a problem you want to solve. And you're going to need to lead a team with a client that I just described in the very test and learn uh, iterative process of trying to get to the right vision. And so that's a very different kind of leadership. And it's a way of thinking that, you know, I know that I have to work on every day and ask myself, am I creating the environment that allows us to bring together the people that have this kind of product mindset? I love so many things that you just said. And it reminds me actually of a early point in my career as a product manager at the time leading a new product. And I remember one of my mentors telling me, you get along with your designer too well. And at the time, I remember thinking, that's really bizarre feedback. But I think it was exactly what you were getting at, which is the diversity of thought is so critical in new product development and ensuring that you're cultivating teams that really start to look at things from different angles to combat different biases that happen in innovation is so critical. And that psychological safety is paramount. It's something I really strive to bring to my teams as well. I, again, one of those great examples of, of how that tension can be so healthy and how when you really have a deep-rooted trust on a small team tackling an unknown, right? They don't know where they're going to end up and they're trying to figure out, they're trying to learn together as quickly as possible it also requires having that dynamic between individuals on the team so that they can push each other to call call one another out. I had, again, early on in my career, a phenomenal design partner that I worked with. And we had just gone through launching a new pilot. It was out in market. We'd had a session. Everything was going great. You're we all so excited. We had all these survey results. I went to lunch, came back. Same exact survey. She had very politely highlighted in yellow all the negative feedback because I had been so excited about all the progress that we had made. And there's a bias, right? Most people who end up in innovation are ultimately optimists. And so we can fall into that trap. And she just very politely highlighted them, put a sticky on my desk that said, we're doing great, but there's still so much to clean and so much more to do. And I remember thinking, this is the magic. This is what you want. You want people who are looking out for all of these different opportunities and reading the exact same script a completely different way and trying to figure out how do we do the best thing for our customer and move forward and and really get through that. And I just 
I, I think it's so critical to ensure that teams have the support and structure in place and the ability to have some flexibility in that. And that's a challenge, as you pointed out, right? The, the nuance between change management and innovation and how those are usually very deeply coupled. An, an organization realizes they need to to kind of do both at the same time and figuring out how you have the right structures in place to ensure you can do both really well is is critical. And those two stories are so wonderful, Emma. They really underline this notion of sort of you agreeing with your designer. Great harmony is not necessarily great for innovation, as you said. And like you, I share a optimism bias, so I'm sure I would have been celebrating every positive thing and needed someone waving a yellow highlighter at me as well. Uh, you know, it's it's so good to have those people around you, right, who who can hear that other side of the picture. It, it reminds me of a couple stories I can share uh, back to you. So one is actually a metaphor, which you may have heard before, which is the ketchup metaphor. The question is, where do you store your ketchup in your house? And some people keep their ketchup in the cupboard. And some people keep their ketchup in the refrigerator. And by the way, both are fine and neither is preferable. But what's interesting is, depending on where you store your ketchup, what happens when you run out of it? You need to find an alternate condiment. Well, if you store your ketchup in the refrigerator, you're going to look at the mayonnaise, for example, that might be next to it. Uh, if you store it in the cupboard, you may end up with vinegar or salt. And the point of this metaphor is the experiences we have tend to define the options that we consider. And so you want people with many different experiences because they're going to think of different ways to solve a problem. And the more people you have thinking differently about how to solve a problem and arguing over things like where ketchup should be stored, the better off you are and the richer answers you're going to get to. And then I can also tell you a cautionary tale that I always like to tell, like one of my first big mistakes I made in leading product that was such a great example of group thinking and, and working in an echo chamber. And this was back earlier in my career, and I was working for a payments platform. And we had a product that was a payments platform for charity. And so we would host a web page or a mobile page that allowed charities to accept donations. And we were growing quite well uh, as, a, as an organization. Uh, we were having more and more nonprofit customers. And I was really proud of what we did. And we, we just focused so hard on seamless payments processing, making things, pages really easy to build for nonprofits and so on and so forth. And boy, did I think that I was customer centric. And I was out giving a speech about, I think, probably how to be customer centric and a, a sad part of irony here. <laughs> and I was giving the speech and I mentioned where I worked and named the organization. And someone in the audience raised their hand and said, oh, I have your services. And I thought, oh, this is great. Product placement right in the middle of my talk. There were like 200 people in the room. I thought, how, how delightful. And the person kept their hand up and I asked if he had a question. And he said, well, I just want to tell you it doesn't work. At which point I was mortified and I wanted to hide behind the podium and 
was sort of like one of my many anxiety dreams I tend to have before I do public speaking. And I said, oh, I'm so sorry. I will call our CTO. As soon as this is over, we'll get this sorted out. I'm so sorry. People click and can't make a donation. And then he raised his hand again, at which point I was very much convinced I was having a bad dream. And he said, you don't understand. You can click and make a donation, but no one clicks on my button. And the clouds parted. And I had this epiphany where I realized we've been solving the wrong problem. We thought we were in the business of processing donations, but our customers were in the business of fundraising. And those are two different things, aren't they? You can have a seamless payments platform and host pages and do everything just right. But if no one donates, the whole thing falls apart, not only for the customer, but for our business, right? And uh, and so it was an incredible moment when I realized that I had not been spending enough of time with our customers deeply understanding the problem they had, which is they needed more donations. They didn't just need a way to collect them. Thank you for sharing that story. I You can't see this, but I'm sort of smiling and nodding intently because I understand both the panic dream uh, ahead of time of going up a live demo or something that goes around <laughs> and you've got that one person who keeps poking. But I also love that you were so open to that. And I think that becomes such a critical piece in talking to consumers, which is that there are so many biases that we all naturally have as humans and can really cloud our judgment even when we go talk directly to consumers. So there's a question number one, which is, how frequently are you really getting in the weeds and understanding their problem? And how do you do that? And there's a bunch of different ways in terms of shadowing, interviewing. There's a whole discipline that exists in order to try to better understand what's going on with the end user. And one thing that becomes really critical is just frequency. How often are you actually interacting with that end consumer to understand? Because the more filters of degrees removed you are, the harder it is to really get back to what is the fundamental problem. And we can all lose sight of that. So Katya, I want to switch gears a little and chat about how we get closer to the consumer and how we better understand what their needs are and what we should be doing. Yes. Well, we share a passion for figuring out how to truly understand our consumers. So I'm actually hoping maybe you can talk about a recent experience we had with our anxiety and depression pilot where we sought to do just that. But before I turn it back to you, a couple thoughts on this. First of all, it's so important to engage your customer, your stakeholder, whoever your product is for, multiple times from the moment you're conceiving of the problem or identifying problems you're trying to solve to how you might solve it to possible solutions, to actual experiences, uh, all the way through to execution of an experience and then continue to seek feedback over time. It's something that has to happen over the entire life cycle of a product and never stop happening. And that is, like I said earlier, just a job that's never done for a product leader and I think, frankly, for any good business leader. The trick, though, is in doing that it can be really tempting to look for evidence that we were right in our hypothesis that we're setting out to test with our customers. I think of your story. You just told Emma about your colleague. You heard all the good and then your colleague got out the highlight pen to underline the things that needed improvement, right? And that's such a great example 
of confirmation bias and, and our desire to seek evidence that we're on the right track uh, or that we have the correct approach. I know that I bring my optimism can be a bias. There's a wonderful mentor I've had, Khalil Smith. He's now chief diversity officer at Akamai Technologies, but he used to be at the Neuroleadership Institute. And he says, if you have a brain, you are biased. And I think that's exactly right. And so we think we are incredibly consumer-centric and human-centric, and we're going out and observing and asking questions and doing all this research. But we have to acknowledge we're bringing our own lenses to it. And that's why it's so important to have diverse teams so that we can mitigate the risk of everyone bringing a matching bias and we develop blind spots, but also to have the psychological safety and openness to argue over the different perspectives and what is the meaning of what we're learning. But maybe you can talk a little bit about both what we have piloted and how we've done some of this test and learn approach. So our anxiety and depression pilot, which we call A&D for short, we sort of came up with the idea that, hey, there's this whole space that we need to address. We're seeing changes in the landscape. There's an opportunity here. But what does that really mean? And so you start by saying, let's interview users. Let's understand what anxiety and depression really means and what the fundamental pain point or problem is. And what I love about what that team did is they kept going back to the consumer. They kept doing research and they finally distilled it to I need to get to the right provider quickly in order to engage with therapy in order to address my anxiety and depression. Now, sometimes it's not necessarily getting to a provider. Maybe it's getting to something like calm. But the idea here is how do we get you to the right answer as quickly as possible? And what does that mean to look like? And so the first piece is not, hey, let me try to narrow from day one on a sort of minor outcome I'm driving and saying, hey, let me talk to users, let me understand that space, and then let me distill that to an outcome and trying to drive something that you mentioned earlier, Katya, being outcomes driven. And so we really looked at, can we get the majority, we we straight, we actually went for 85% of folks who are looking for care, can we get it to get them to care within 10 days? And we started to understand that that was the sweet spot for the users that we were looking at and trying to understand how do we get you not just to hey, I've agreed and I'm ready to go take that first step of finding a therapist. But how do we actually understand who is the right therapist for you? What does that match need to look like? As you can imagine, that looks really different depending on the individual, depending on who they are, their background, what challenges they want to go talk through and figure out and, and work on. And so figuring out that personalization, back to your point earlier in the podcast around data and thinking through how do we start to personalize? How do we start to leverage data to bring back that consumer problem, this health problem, which is, hey, I need help. I have anxiety and depression. And really what that distills down to is when I am in a state where I am open to trying to solve this problem, I need to get to the right provider quickly. And if I take too long, if we get that match wrong or we take too long to get you scheduled, chances are you're not going to engage, right? We see a situation where if we actually get you there in 10 days, but we don't get you with the provider that meets your needs, you have honestly maybe a, a disappointing time and you don't re-engage. And that leads to a, a whole different series of consequences in your mental health. And so when you look at how do we start small? How do we say, hey, we're seeing a change in the landscape. Let's distill that down to a metric we think matters, but let's keep iterating and testing with our 
we did this as uh, some internal employees of how do we understand what their needs are and keep iterating our way through to a solution. And I'm so impressed with what that team was able to do, how they approached it, how they continue to iterate and approach and think through, okay, matching and scheduling, getting you to that right provider is such a key component. That's a key aspect of it. But what comes next? Where are we going? What's the next big pain point? And how do we start to get there as quickly as possible, but in a way that continues to drive that engagement in your own personal health journey? I was really impressed by how the team was able to really go for the latent need problem, right? They really started to understand and look at what are some of those issues that prevent you from getting care. And instead of using some of the biases we see most often, right, primacy effect or observer effect or or sort of frequency illusion, they really took the, the time to say, okay, how do we have the interdisciplinary team? How do we make sure that we've got the right folks at the table looking at the research, synthesizing that, and then moving forward into an approach? And they leaned on that diversity of thought of that team and really pushed it forward. And I just love seeing it in action. I am so excited about where they're going and kind of what we're doing in that space and just love um, the openness that that team in particular has demonstrated and thinking through new product development. Oh, I love it too. You know, I was noticing how many times in this conversation you've wor- used the word love. It reminds me of a wonderful quote um, from the Leadership Challenge, which is my, it's an oldie but goodie. It's my favorite book on leadership. But they say that leaders, like great leaders are in love. They say great leaders are in love with the people who do the work, with what their organizations produce, and with their customers. The reason these folks who worked on the pilot did such a great job was they were in love with the customers and the process of learning and getting to the right product. And too often we fall in love with our product, right? We, we fall in love with the product and we don't want to hear negative reaction to it. We All of our biases kick in. And what they did such a good job at is taking that love and passion for the problem at hand and focusing it on this openness, this passion to learn, and this really persistent curiosity about what might be the next great way to innovate, which I love. The other side, you hit it so perfectly, which is it's so critical that you aren't tied to the product, you're tied to the outcome and to the consumer. And you're doing it with a team, back to your point on psychological safety, you're doing it with a team that you care about and that you trust. And they don't have to be your best friend, right? We don't have to be in a world where everyone is friends outside of work. You know, you want to do it in such a way that you have just that fundamental trust that the people that you are working with every day are there and showing up because they care about the people they are serving. That was beautifully said, Emma. I don't think I can think of a better way to wind up today. It really is the key to innovation, but also I just think great leadership in business or in the nonprofit world or whatever you're leading, that you keep your passion toward what should be next, not just what you think the right answer is. And that openness And that curiosity and that desire to learn, I think, are the greatest determinants of whether we will have success over time or not. 
And we really need to hold fast to that passion for learning. As I always like to say, I think in healthcare, the companies that are going to win are the companies that can learn the fastest. And so here's to learning fast. And thank you so much for having me today. Thank you for listening to the Health Unscripted podcast. It's been wonderful to spend time with you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Health Unscripted brought to you by The Signer Group. If you enjoyed today's show, please take a moment to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.